These are crazy times. Everybody's apart and personally I miss squeezing people and physically seeing people. But our sponsors on Post still give you loads of ways to stay connected. So for that, I am very thankful. Homemade chips with lashings of garlic and the skins still on. Planting seeds with my little girl in the sunshine and finally hanging shelves that I bought nine months ago. There are a million things that I'm thankful for today, but what is my guest thankful for? Twitter could be a really lovely place to be over the coming months. I'm an introvert, so I'm well used to self-isolating, but there's a lot of people out there who aren't used to it at all. Welcome to Thanks A Million. I'm Angela Scanlon and this is the show that takes a sneaky look at my guests' gratitude list to find out the things that have shaped their lives. So today it is the turn of writer John Ronson, a fascinating fella whose books have been turned into numerous feature films. The Man Who Stared at Goats, Frank and Okja. He's hunted aliens with Robbie Williams for crying out loud. Before we go to him, a huge thank you to you for listening to this show, particularly in these crazy, crazy times. I'm hoping that we're bringing a little bit of comfort and um, perspective into your lives. On Instagram, I have been posting pretty regularly since all of this stuff kicked off the three things that I am grateful for every day. Well, most days when I get right into it. The hashtag is thanks a million trio and they can be really monotonous, very exciting, deeply profound. Basically, whatever floats your boat and you some of you, but also people that just follow me on Instagram and don't know what a podcast is, have been getting in touch. I'm going to read some of these out and I would urge you to go on there and and share yours. So, Brenda, number one, my lovely sis-in-law delivered a box of buns from the bakery. Oh, I love a bun. Two, I got my kitchen cupboard sorted at last. And number three, I reconnected with a friend I haven't talked to in ages. Alex said... And he's cleaned out his balcony, so now has a lovely space where my toddler can throw the ball from the first floor. Not ideal for the neighbours below. Two, had a good food day. Three, I'm saving a ton of money by not going to work and buying lunches, treats. I am worth it. Things. I hear you. The all flat whites were crippling me. And suddenly you realise you don't need six of them to come alive in the morning. What else have we got? Oh, Laura Alban, power washing my patio and the joy of watching my one-year-old in her big brother's swing while he learns to ride his bike. Doesn't that sound idyllic? Also, my dad is an absolute fiend for the power hose and actually, I totally get it. I think it's like a Hoover, but in heightened reality, you see the fruits of your labour in very clear terms. Right, well, we get stuck in. This week... We have got John Ronson. I've told you that already. What I haven't told you is that he was in lockdown. We weren't quite there, but we were edging slowly towards it. So there was a slightly odd feel to it, but we weren't quite aware of the enormity of the situation, I think is fair to say. So just a little bit of context. Also, in terms of the sound... We were using a little thing on the tinterweb, which should have been foolproof, but, you know, wasn't always. I was using a dictaphone. There were maybe children noises in the background, some dogs barking. But this is the working from home life that we all need to become accustomed to. So please be a little gentle with your criticism of the sometimes ropey sound. I think John's insight and humour 
and his stories make up for it. At least, I hope so. Right, here it is. Thank you so much, John, first of all. I know you're up the walls. So, country has gone into to lockdown. It's so weird out there at the moment. How are you guys doing on the other side of the ocean? Well, we're fine. We're in a little village in upstate New York, me and my wife and dogs. And so we're totally fine. Everybody's um, working together to try and make this work. So like the grocery stores closed, but you can still phone up and they'll leave the uh, they'll leave the order on the doorstep and you, oh. you can come and get it. My son is in Brooklyn, though. He's hunkering down for the apocalypse in Brooklyn. And uh, I think rightly, because I think he'd go nuts up here. He's got his friends and his girlfriend down there. So, Well, it's, it's a bit more feral here at the moment, but I think that's just because we're not really sure what's happening. So, you know, there's no... Right, speech. you're getting... Yeah, you're getting mixed messages. I mean, we are too, but your messages seem to be even more mixed, like social distancing versus herd immunity is two very, very differing um, pieces of advice. It's weird, weird times. You've talked about anxiety and your experience with that, your big worrier. Given the situation that we're in and how kind of uncertain things are, I imagine that makes things more, well, I would have imagined it would make things more difficult, but you sound um, very chilled out. Yeah, a a funny thing about suffering from an anxiety disorder, and this isn't just me, I think this is most people who have anxiety disorders, is that when something really catastrophic happens, we're very good at dealing with it. And it's because we've practised catastrophizing for decades. So an eerie calm and focus and purpose overwhelms us at times like this. With anxiety, I think, well, my experience with anxiety is you're catastrophizing over things that don't actually happen. So does it not feel slightly different that this is happening? Yeah, it, it, it completely changes your relationship with it in terms of anxiety. You're right. Anxiety is all about what psychologists call what-if worries. Mm. Uh, I can't get my wife on the phone. What if she's dead? And then you yeah. immediately go to that as being like the obvious. The obvious, of course she's dead. Um, and you go through all the grieving stages until, you know, she phones you up five minutes later. Drunk. <laughs> or, yeah, try. <laughs> frequently, frequently. So, <laughs> and um, um, but yeah, but when a real crisis happens, a, a, a real eerie calm overwhelms you, and you become, you know, you just think it all through, like every eventuality. And also because most people with anxiety are ethical people like moral people we don't then go and panic by 17,000 bottles of hand sanitizer like that man in Tennessee did Uh, we're responsible we're all for the common good and we're just quietly focused on what we need to do to get our family through this it's weird that anxiety sufferers and hypochondriacs people with OCD are the ones who are best in a situation like this? In a crisis, yeah. It's good. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, I, I tweeted that the other day and I had like a thousand replies saying like, oh my God, uh, you, uh, I've been thinking that all week, but you put it into words and, yeah. you know, psychotherapists were replying saying, I've seen that with OCD patients. So it's not just me. You know, I think this is really 
a thing. You know, introverts and anxiety sufferers have a Darwinian advantage. All, all the things that all the things that we don't want to do, like shaking hands and going to parties, yeah. suddenly those are like real skills to see us in these shuffling times. Um, so, what are you? What are you grateful for then today, right now? Well, right now, uh, I'm grateful for the fact that my local grocery store is taking telephone orders. And I'm a little ungrateful for the fact So, what, what you have to do is you um, fill in an order form. Uh, so, you, for instance, you check yoghurt, you tick yoghurt, okay. and then they phone you up and go through every make of yoghurt that they have oh, and every flavour. So... <laughs> So I have a sort of strange mix of gratitude and ingratitude for that because I don't want to have like any yoghurt. But I actually found myself joining in and going, um, when you say peach and strawberry, is it peach and strawberry or is it <laughs> peach with <laughs> <and> strawberry? strawberry. <laughs> yeah. So I'm grateful for the people up at, up at the deli. We've got some lovely, uh, we've got some neighbours. I go running every day. Um, there's this, there's a really nice sort of three or four mile run down country lane. So I always pass this beautiful, misty house that's an Airbnb. And I'm grateful to them because, I, you know, I stop mid-run and we have a little social distanced chat to make sure we're all okay. So I've been thinking a lot about the age of the self versus the age of common good. Mm-hmm. And the sort of common good seems to be, I mean, maybe I'm being naive, but it feels to me like the common good is kind of taking over. People are just very naturally, you know, other than those doofuses who are still going on spring break in Florida. Oh, my God, um, what a pack of dickheads, yeah. I know. But, you know, yeah. everyone, you know, everyone, certainly everyone around me is, you know, just quietly making sure everyone's okay. And gently doing it. And I feel there's not the kind of often people jump on Instagram or, you know, social media generally and try and not not take advantage. That feels too strong, but, you know, maybe capitalise a little bit. But it just feels like there's a much more thoughtful approach, which maybe is because it's it's uncharted territory, but it definitely feels like a gentler kind of approach and I mean look you've had adventures with extremists you're no stranger to conspiracy theories and exploring those have you heard any particularly wild conspiracies around this no I mean I know some people think it was like it built in a lab as a weapon yeah but I haven't really been following that that's too grim a thought isn't it yeah and it's presumably ridiculous and not true um, right. And then do you have a third a third thing today that maybe you're grateful for? I never, I never thought I'd say this, but Twitter. But I think if people can resist giving each other little slaps for doing something slightly wrong, those really annoying affectations that people have on Twitter where they go like, nope. I think Twitter could be a really lovely place to be over the coming months, a place for, I mean, a really important place to be. You know, I'm a, I'm an introvert, so I'm well used to self-isolating, but there's a lot of people out there who aren't used to it at all, and it's going to yeah. be really hard on them. And, um, and I think if Twitter can be a sort of nice place to visit for a few months... You know, you know, pharmacies are prouse gouging hand sanitizer. I'm not saying just give those people a break. You, you still need to call out immoral behaviour. But I do think that people who really aren't doing that much wrong 
should should have a little bit of a break during this period and not be attacked for saying something slightly wrong or whatever. Yeah, and not be afraid of saying something slightly wrong. It's kind of almost like the early days of Twitter. I remember, ironically, it was uh, Graham Linehan said this to me like 10 years ago, said there's this amazing um, new place called Twitter uh, where everyone's nice to each other and everyone's supporting each other and uh, you can be unselfconscious. It's like the opposite of the rest of the internet. And and sure enough, 10 years ago, that is what Twitter was like. And maybe it'll be like that again for a few months. Like Instagram, which you're, you're on Instagram as well, but in a less involved way. Yeah. Um, Instagram definitely has a, a better vibe to it, though. Mm. So maybe I, maybe I will move on to yeah. that more. Um, what is your thank fuck for this? So, like, the thing in your life that you would be lost without? Um, my family, my dogs. You know what? The ability to write. I'm, I'm feeling very upbeat right now. And that's to a large extent because I've got writing to do. You know, I wake up in the morning and I'm occupying myself with something that I can do. I worry for people who are self-isolating, who can't think of anything productive to do on their own because I think that's really important I think being waking up in the morning and being productive during this time is is good and so I'm really grateful for that I've still got ways to occupy my mind Mm -hmm. and a structure are you quite are you quite uh, militant with the way that you approach writing yes I, I pretty much work other than when I go running I pretty much work all day starting about seven in the morning and finishing about four or five in the afternoon. I'm also grateful to all the dramas um, that I haven't bothered watching that I can now binge watch. (laughs) So what's top of the list? Um, Well, these are the ones I haven't watched. So uh, Halt and Catch Fire, uh, I've been told, is very good and a bit slipped underneath a lot of people's radars. Yeah. Tremmy, I think that's how it's pronounced, which is uh, David Simon's uh, drama about Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. On Netflix, the two most watched shows at the moment are Pandemic, for obvious reasons, and Love is Blind, which is... Have you seen Love is Blind, John? No, people keep telling me to see Love is Blind. I watched the trailer with my wife and I, and I was hooked and my wife was like, there's no way we're watching this. So. Oh, no. I mean, I urge you to do it. You can do it alone. It is one of those things. It's filthy. Like, it's worth doing it on your own. I've never gotten into the Love Island thing. I'm now wondering whether I should change that stance but love is blind it's absolutely insane but it's total escapism and it definitely makes you feel better about your life choices I feel what is your thank you next so this might be like a chapter in your life where something happened at the time that felt disastrous but in hindsight you might have gratitude for Well, there's been a lot of occasions when I've been on an adventure for one of my books where at the time it was just awful. Like I felt like I'd made a terrible mistake. I'd put myself in terrible personal danger. You know, I was going to be killed by Nazis or, you know, I was once chased by servicemen working for a shadowy organisation, but I was just terrified. And on every one of those occasions, I survived and it ended up with a really good 
chapter of the book. So oh, I'm yeah, grateful. Okay. I'm always great, I'm grateful for those times. And so did you, because I think sometimes when you're, you know, making telly or doing a work project, you kind of do put aside, like I certainly would do things for the good of telly or something that I wouldn't do in real life. Like I'm terrified of heights, but absolutely I'll do a skydive if it's going to be filmed. Do you think that you kind of have been quite, not reckless, but like put yourself in situations that you absolutely wouldn't in, um, you know, in real life? Oh yeah, all the time, all the time. You know, I, I once um, tried to infiltrate the Bilderberg group, which is this powerful shadowy group Um who conspiracy theorists believe secretly rule the world. And I stupidly discovered where their meeting was going to be and I flew to Portugal and tried to sneak into their meeting and then ended up getting into a car chase. I was chased by their security guards. Do you feel like the kind of, you know, the the um, the chase kind of, or that want to get a story actually makes you feel a bit invincible? And maybe it, it does make you a bit invincible because they're not going to kill you if they know you're someone, quote unquote, someone. Well, during my big being chased by the Bilderberg group, um, I tried to tell them who I was. I, I stopped my car, and so the guy pursuing me stopped his car, and I went up to his car and tried to show him my press pass, and he assiduously looked forward, like refusing to engage with me at all. And then I found the British Embassy and told them I was being chased by the Bilderberg group, and the woman from the British Embassy went, <gasps> and then she went, go on. <laughs> so that wasn't comforting. Um, so she phoned me back. And said, um, well, first she said, what are you doing here? What are you doing in Portugal? And I said, well, I'm essentially a humorous journalist out of my depth. I said, maybe you can phone the Bilderberg office and explain that to them. She was kind of baffled. So I said, um, I said I'm said, i a bit like Louis Theroux. And she went, oh. And, and I said, uh, oh, but um, he actually cites me as an inspiration. This could have been my last day on earth. And I was, <laughs> I was ending it explaining to a stranger that she may have heard of Louis Theroux and not me, but <laughs> she, actually, but she, I'm the I'm the real deal. I'm the original. Yeah, I didn't go as far as to say. Well, actually, we both can addict it from Nick Broomfield. I didn't go as far as to say that. I thought, I thought there's going to be boundaries. I am in the middle of a car chase. Oh, no. <laughs> Yeah. Well, do you think in a way that Louis Louis is kind of protected in a way that sometimes you're not, if you're literally in the middle of Portugal on your own with nothing but a press pass, usually he's flanked by at least a few camera people. That's very true. And actually, when you asked me that question, I thought of Louis because Louis put it really well one time. Somebody said to him, you know, why do you put yourself in all of these dangerous situations? And Louis's reply was, not doing it feels worse. Do you think you have absolute clarity in in what you do and who you are and what you want to do? Yeah, I still do. I do make mistakes though. Like still, I, not many, but but every so often, I'll agree to do something. You know, either because I didn't really properly think it through, like a like a story that superficially sounds like it's going to be interesting, and but you should have thought deeper. So I, I still do make mistakes, but but not very often. I'd say I'd say like. Nine times out of ten, I, I choose. Yeah, and that's based on gut instinct. There's a couple of... I've got a couple of little rules. Um, it, 
The first one is being genuinely um, intrigued by something that I don't know the answer to. Mm-hmm. So if the story seems genuinely mysterious to me, that's that's a really good that's a really good rule. You can't pretend to be intrigued by something when you're not. And then if if you've got this vague idea that, okay, I'm going to go on a journey to try and solve this mystery. I don't know what's going to happen, but whatever happens is bound to be interesting. That That's like, that's the story I want to do. So one example of that was my book, The Psychopath Test. I, I had this sort of brainwave um, that all these Harvard psychologists think that psychopaths are four times more likely to be at the top of the corporate ladder than at the bottom. Like, there's this mental disorder, and it's the worst mental disorder in the world, psychopathy, and um, it kind of rules the world. You're much more likely to have a psychopath at the top of the tree than the bottom. So I thought, well, that's really interesting. How, how could I do that story? And then I thought, I know. I'll go on a course to teach myself how to spot psychopaths, and and then I'll journey into the corridors of power and try and spot psychopaths in power. And I thought, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but whatever happens is going to be interesting. So that's that was a perfect that's a perfect starting point, I'd say, for a story. The tanks that got away. So, so it could be somebody that's you know, no longer with us, or it could be somebody who got you out of a sticky situation and legged it because they thought you smelt like trouble? That's a really good question. And I know that in my past, I've I've said, you know, I would love to have thanked that person, but now I can't. You know what, though, can I tell you the opposite? Can I tell you the opposite? This doesn't reflect well on me, but I'm going to tell you this. Do it. Okay, so about... um, about a, about a year ago, I found someone's cell phone uh, in the park, and I thought, okay, I'm going to have to, you know, get this back to its owner. So, but I didn't know how to. Obviously, it was locked, but so I had to wait until people, um, you know, phoned. Unfortunately, um, the, the the woman who it belonged to was Spanish, and all the people who was phoning her were, were Spanish. So and didn't speak English very well, and I don't speak any Spanish. So, um, so I was like trying to explain. It became like really frustrating. I finally got hold. This went on for hours. Like, like this, this became like my my days work um and um finally i spoke to the woman's niece who spoke english and we arranged for a pickup and i told her about my address and so uh, she came to my apartment building and she wanted to thank me but i was so tired after after everything that I've been through. I, so I left the phone with the doorman. We've got like a doorman in our apartment building. And I, I, I left the phone with him and he buzzed up so I could go downstairs and be thanked by her. And I just didn't want to. It's like I'm quite, <laughs> I'm kind of introverted and I was tired and, you know, it was the evening by then. So I denied her the chance to thank me in person. Oh is, is that really, is that really bad? No, I just love that, you know, considering all of the things you do and the situations you put yourself in, that a day at the other end of the phone is <laughs> like a really, really hectic day. It was just too much for me. Well, a little bit of me started thinking, you know, God, getting this phone back to its rightful owner is... Absolute pain. I should have left it. You should have left it there. 
Yeah, and of course, there's always that question, like you know, would the person have retraced their steps? And but it was in a, it was in a, it was in a obscure part of Riverside Park in Manhattan. It was like in a park where people don't normally go to. I tend to go there so I can stand behind trees and watch people. No, I'm kidding, that's not work. But it was a slightly, it was a slightly scrubby area of the park, which people tend not to go to. Yeah, yeah. And then you're there hovering, picking up phones from people. That's why it's got the reputation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. well, what is the big thank you? Well, what popped into my head when you said that, because I've done no preparation for this interview, but I think you'll find I've really been um, uh, nimble on my feet and come up with things, you know. You know, what popped into my head when you said that was, was the people who were who get something out of out of my work you know the people who like my stories the people who listen to my podcasts um you know my, my work um is is really important to me it's like it's you know it's like the source of my self-esteem and it's what I do every day it's what I kind of you know other than my family and my dogs it's really the only thing that I that I live for and mm-hmm. and I'm really grateful that, that I found a sort of community of people who get something out of it and, and, and allow me to continue to do it. Yeah, it's funny. I, I posted earlier on that I was uh, chatting to you this evening and the amount of messages that I got um, from people who, you know, citing all of all of your books, all of your work, but also your voice. They were like, oh, his voice is so soothing. And obviously, I, you know, I've listened to all your audiobooks and your voice is very soothing <laughs> to listen to. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm very grateful to hear that. And for a long time, I didn't realise that I had a distinctive voice. It was, it was only... Um, it was only um, when I started doing radio shows and my voice would be recognised in record stores and stuff that I realised I had a distinctive voice. No one had told me until then. But also, like, you were born in Cardiff. It's not very cardiff No, it? it's not. It's not Cardiff at all. I'm glad you noticed that. No, it's because when I was about 18 or 19, well, when I grew up, Cardiff was much more anglicised than it is now. So there wasn't sort of Welsh language lessons at my school. The signs didn't have the Welsh translation. Both my parents were English. My dad was from London and my mum was from um, uh, Liverpool. And um, so we didn't really grow up in a particularly Welsh environment. And then when I moved to to Manchester when I was about 20, um, I moved to London and then Manchester. For some reason, I just... The, the Manchester accent sort of rubbed off on me. I was there for eight or nine years. I think my accent, if it, if it sounds like anything, it sounds probably more Mancunian. OK, the gift that you are most grateful for receiving. You know what? You know, the very first time I heard about the internet, seriously, was I did this story when I was just starting out in my career. And it was about this kid who'd been switched at birth by accident he was a Muslim and he was switched with a with a Jewish baby by accident. And so he grew up in an Orthodox Jewish family um, and vice versa. And they just discovered it. And so I met him and he, he said, you know, there's this new thing uh, called the internet. Um, you should check it out. There's this amazing thing called CompuServe and you go on CompuServe. It only takes, you know, 10 minutes to dial up. And <laughs> yeah. You, you can have a really, you know, you can have a conversation with a stranger. Do you remember what your very first email address was? 
Yeah, it was John Ronson and then a long string of numbers. Um, John Ronson, 9842-7694 at compuserve.com. Mine was Eyeball Ange. Have you seen the movie um, Kevin and Perry Go Large? (laughs) (laughs) I I know what the movie is, but I've never seen it. Oh, put that one on your list as well, John. That one went under the radar too. Um, (laughs) There was a dude in it who used to drink Sambucas through his eyeball. And he, he he called himself Eyeball Paul, and um, I once attempted to do it. I'm not proud of it, but I I then was eyeballange at hotmail.com for a period of time. You know, no, the, the guy in the film didn't have mascara on, and he never really talked about how painful and stingy it is. So it wasn't as classy a move as I thought it was. Yeah. Do you have any party pieces? Mac the knife karaoke. I, I, it would also be Parasite by the Dashboard Light karaoke by Meatloaf, but oh. I play both parts, both the man and the woman. Oh. <laughs> it's quite an epic that track. I did it once at a. Um, I was undercover at, on a Disney cruise. I tried to solve a, a missing. Try to solve a missing person case. This, a woman called Rebecca Corian worked for a Disney cruise and she went missing off the cruise. And her family, uh, well, I reached out to her family and said, maybe I'll go on the cruise and see if I can find out, you know, what happened to your daughter. Mm-hmm. And so I went on the cruise undercover. And as part of my undercover work, I went to the karaoke and did Paradise by the Dashboard Light. And, um, and I've never seen so many angry faces. It made me realise that people go to karaoke not to hear people sing badly, but to hear people sing well. Did you know that about karaoke? Well, it's kind of like at a, at a, a sing-song at an after-party and people say, go on, sing. They hope that you know your own limitations and that if you can't sing, you'll step a, step away from it. Like, there's nothing worse than someone who can't sing who hogs the mic. Right. Well, and now I know that from the faces of those people <laughs> on that Disney cruise branded into my psyche. What is, what do you think or who do you think in your life, apart from the Spanish lady whose phone you found who, you didn't allow to say thank you to you maybe that's it maybe she's the one but is there anyone else who you think might say thank you to you yeah I think some some of the people I've written about you know I've I've um helped people regain their reputation at times the first person that really came to my mind when he said that is 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 Justine Sacco the um Mm. the age tweet woman who I felt and still feel was Treated unfairly. This is um, uh, so you're publicly shamed. She's like that. I guess she's like one of the more famous stories in that particular book. So you've been publicly shamed. Just for anyone who hasn't heard it, the, so the tweet she got on worked in PR. Got on a flight. Was about to go to Cape Town. Got on the flight. Um, and and the tweet was, "I'm off to Africa. I hope I don't get AIDS. Oh no, it's fine. I'm white. I forgot I'm white." Um, and and by the time she landed in Cape Town, she was. So she was cancelled. Now we have a term for it. She was cancelled. She was destroyed, really. She was kind of um, ground zero of public shaming. Um, she was the first great shaming. And it happened while she was asleep on a plane and, and completely oblivious. Uh, and people thought that was hilarious, like putting somebody on trial when they don't even know they're on trial. And, you know, when you think about her her joke, which, is, you know, is, is no means a good joke, mm-hmm. but... 
you know, go to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. It only took me, you know, a minute of looking at this tweet to think, you know, this reminds me of Randy Newman. You know, Randy Newman has, has a great um, back catalogue of songs where he makes fun of his own privilege by doing a sort of exaggerated version of his own privilege. Songs like My Life Is Good, which is like this, you know, ama- you know, amazing song, sort of making fun of his own privilege. And I thought, well, that's obviously what Justine Sacker was trying to do. And she doesn't, she's, you know, she's not doing it very well, but that's what she's trying to do. Um, and she's not got any opportunity to explain herself because she's being completely destroyed while she's asleep on a plane. Um, so I wrote that very sort of forcefully. Like Usually I could sort of see both sides of, of an argument, but with that one, I thought, no, this is really bad yeah. um, for so many different reasons. And I, so, so I wrote a very sort of forceful defence of her for that for that reason. You know, I, I think that helped her a lot. So I think she, she would be grateful to me for doing that. And I mean, I, I guess that whole, you know, it, it, there's... It feels like cancel culture and that thirst has not waned really, even since no, those kind of episodes. Yeah, in fact, if anything, it's um, it's worse. Waxed. I can't remember whether waxed is the same as waned, or is, is waxed a synonym or oh. antonym of waned? <laughs> I think, yeah, waning and waxing. Waxed, I like. I mean, I haven't heard it used in that way, but I think it's a missed opportunity for people. Yeah. Well, assuming that it's the opposite of waned, then, yeah, it's waxed. It's been waxing the whole time since the book came out. No one listened to me. Um, Actually, that's not entirely true. Um, Both, I'd say that my book and Monica Lewinsky's TED Talk, which came out at the same time, we did kind of kickstart a a bigger conversation about public shaming. And and I think even though it still happens, it's the, the, the conversation around it is more democratic. One of the things that happened around on the Justine Sacco night was nobody defended her. Everyone, everybody who thought the same way that I did, that this that this was misinterpreted, this joke was being misinterpreted, was too scared to speak out, including journalists. And we're supposed to be, you know, fearless and um in those sorts of situations. Um, and now people are less afraid to speak out. Yeah, yeah, which is a good thing. I'm going to say thank you for that too. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. Um, you know, which doesn't mean, you know, obviously people who, you know, there are people who des- deserve punishment for the things that yeah. they do. But I just felt, you know, back in, 20, well, still today to a large extent, but more so in 2015, 2016, um, it wasn't being questioned. It was just this, yeah, the flame was burning so hot that there was no room for nuance. But do you think, I, I mean, still, and, and I agree, there's there's a certain level of, um, I don't know, maybe people are more measured or there's an, there's the other side of the, of the coin um, at least represented or defended maybe sometimes. But do you think that um, intention, people kind of, maybe the nuance is missed in a tweet or something like that, but the intention and, you know, with Justine just using her as an example, the intention, I think, was not to offend. It was, as you say, to send up her own privilege. But is is that enough of a defence? Do people... Because I kind of like to think that the intention is the most important thing in, um, you know, that if someone's intention is good, or at least it's not bad, there has to be some room. I, I completely agree with you. I was really shocked. You know, when my book came out, 
and it created like such a noise. But that particular book, uh, you know, everyone had an opinion. And I remember one person tweeted exactly what you just said, but the opposite. Uh, she said, doesn't John Ronson realise that intention doesn't matter? And of, of, of everything that was written about my book, that was one of the most shocking things for me. Because of course intention matters, but how can intention not matter? You know, imagine a justice system where intention doesn't matter. In fact, I was so shocked, I, I talked to lawyers about it. And I said, you know, in, in the real justice system, you know, intention always matters, right? And the, the response was, somebody said to me, um, the only time intention doesn't really matter in the law is for things like traffic violations where it's just you know you either did it or you didn't yeah um just before i let you go because i know you're busy um and you're going on news night shortly um so we mentioned some of the the box sets that you're going to be watching at the moment do you imagine that fabian (laughs) is do we think that in this time of uncertainty that pornhub is having an absolute moment or are people actually like at home doing the deed? (laughs) That's such a good question. I I tell you, well, that's that, that's the whole baby boomer thing, right? I mean, yeah, that's going to be nine months time. Is it going to be, I I mean, it's a very good question. And, and, um, I, I would, I, I think we just said, going to have to wait, but, um, that's very interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Are you still in touch with him? Not with Fabian. I'm still in touch with a bunch of the of the porn um, performers and directors that I became friends with. Yeah, yeah. Um, still in touch with Mike Quasar and Casey Calvert, um, but but not Fabian. Even though I was always very um, clear about not saying, you know. Fabian is to blame for all of these terrible things because Fabian was a tech bro, like a million other tech bros. You know, tech bros are amoral, but it would be wrong, I think, to say, you know, look at what this tech, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a culture, I think, that needs to change. Yeah, his, his intention was, was not to create this. Oh, you know what? I, actually, Fabian's intention was that um because what Fabian yeah so actually I'm taking that back because with Fabian he you know creates this platform for everybody to watch porn for free and then he got a 362 million dollar loan from a hedge fund to buy up all these struggling porn companies who were struggling because of him because of Pornhub um bought them all up at bargain rates that was a very I don't know if ruthless is the right word, but certainly a very... Calculated. It's pretty, yeah. Yeah, it was very calculated. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you, Michael Lange. <laughs> <laughs> big, big, big thank you to John Ronson there. Here's a bit of further listening for you. As I mentioned, those books, The Butterfly Effect and The Last Days of August, two amazing series that you can get on Audible, read by the very one John Ronson. And if this has sparked some ideas about what you're thankful for this week, do drop them to me with the hashtag ThanksAmillionTrio or Angela Scanlon. I would love to hear all about them. And I know we're just back for series two, but there's a full series one in the tank with some amazing guests from Ashling B to Cash Carraway, Stacey Dooley, Jack Kavanagh. Amazing. Even if I do say so myself, sorry. Just subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your smart speaker of choice. Merci beaucoup, gracias. If you're loving the show, please do write us a review. Honestly, 
It's very boring for me to have to ask you this with my little begging bowl out and me paw saying, go on, give us some love. It's not my style, but it's really, really important and it helps us be found in the rankings and yada, yada, yada. So I would greatly appreciate if you just pop there, whip out the all five stars and just write a little review and help us spread the word and spread a little bit of positivity and a sprinkle of joy. That would be lovely. Thanks again to John, to my producer, Sarah Miles at Rethink Audio and to all of you at home or like in a car or in a park or in the bath listening. I really, really do appreciate it. Mind yourselves and each other as Barney would say. Thanks a million. Our friends at OnPost sponsor this podcast and I am genuinely thankful that in loads of ways they are helping people stay connected at a time when we all have to be apart. 